But first, we start a little closer to home here with the race to become the next leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, who will replace former leader Andrew Wilkinson in that job. Have a listen to this. This is uh, Liberal MLA Todd Stone yesterday endorsing Kevin Falcon for Liberal Leader. Have a listen. It's more important than ever that we pick the right person to lead the B.C. Liberal Party today. Someone whose values illustrate an understanding of the challenges British Columbians face every single day. Okay, Todd Stone there endorsing his colleague Kevin Falcon to be the Liberal leader, the former B.C. finance minister running for the job. And he joins me now. Kevin Falcon, thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Okay, you got to like getting an endorsement like that. How much support are you getting in this caucus here? It's not the first endorsement you've received. you got a bunch of MLAs coming over to you, it looks like. Yeah, no, well, and I really appreciate it. Look, Ian Payton, Trevor Halford, Mike Morris, and now Todd Stone, I, I think, yeah. you know, all of them represent uh, different parts of the party, different, uh, you know, frankly, uh, constituencies throughout the province. And I'm proud to have all their support. And Todd, I think, you know, he's he's been a long, long time member of this party. And uh, he's an important voice in Kamloops and the interior. And I think he's very well respected in caucus. And I very much appreciate his endorsement. Okay, what is wrong with the B.C. Liberal Party right now, and, and what do you think you can do to, to fix it? Because I'm, I'm just looking at the most recent uh, opinion poll came out just the other day on this, and it says the NDP in the lead, 50% of decided vote. My God, I don't think I've ever seen the NDP this high. 24% for the Liberals. You guys are way behind. What's going on? Well, I think, first of all, you got to understand that we've been going through a pandemic. And, you know, through a pandemic, we had the opposition, both the Greens and the B.C. Liberals, essentially said to the government, look, we're not going to attack you. We're not going to do our traditional job of opposing you. We're going to work together to try and create a better outcome for British Columbians. And, you know, as we saw what happened, Horgan very cynically took advantage of that, called an election, even though the fixed election dates that we brought in as B.C. Liberals were violated and, and he uh, you know he crushed his opposition and, and formed a majority government but now that we're coming out of covid i think people are going to start looking around and they're going to start wondering about things like leadership and competence and they're going to look at the you know complete flubbing of uh, you know capital projects whether it's site c whether it's all the transportation projects or just screw-ups like the cruise ship industry where he's literally putting at risk 17,000 jobs in a $2.7 billion industry by not showing any leadership and responding to pleading some powerful U.S. senators. So I think, you know, this is just the beginning. I promise the listeners out there that you will see more and more of this. And over the next three and a half years, by the time the next election rolls around, I guarantee you people will be looking around saying, we need leadership and competence in this province again. They won't get it from the NDP. Speaking to Kevin Falcon, is running for leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party. The Liberals put out a, a report just the other day that I thought I thought found it kind of surprising, a bit of a sort of a warts and all analysis post-mortem of the last uh, provincial election, which was a bit of a disaster for the Liberals, brought in, brought, written by three Toronto-based consultants, and didn't really spare the lash here in criticizing the party's election campaign and also going after Wilkinson, the former leader, called him stilted and combative and uncomfortable. I was like, wow, I'm reading this right in the Liberal Party website. Do you agree with that analysis? Do you think that Wilkinson was a bad leader? 
Well, no, look, I think it's very easy to point the finger at the leader and try and pretend that's uh, all of the problem. But I actually think that the problems go back uh, and they predate uh, Andrew Wilkinson, quite frankly. I think the party started losing its way many years earlier. Uh, we started losing our way by, frankly, not uh, focusing on principled policies, uh, being clear about what it is we believe in and stand for, and put that out in front of the public and fight for it. And, and I just think that if you're going to just be politics all the time, you're not going to be very successful in, in government or as a political party. You've got to believe in things that rise above day-to-day politics and transactional politics. You've got to have deeper principles that say, look, this is why we're doing this. It's really about thinking about the next generation, making decisions today that will benefit that next generation tomorrow. Those are different decisions than what's in our best interest over the next 30 days or, or so we can try and win this next election. I just think that that's where we kind of lost away. The other area that I think we lost our ways. We just frankly didn't have a party that reflected the, the communities we represent. I want right. to be really clear about one thing. I said this in day one. We're going to be a more diverse party. I want people that believe in the private enterprise system to say this is the party I want to belong to regardless of background, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of uh, ethnicity. They're all going to be welcome in a Kevin Falcon, BC Liberal Party. Okay, let me ask you about a couple of other issues facing the province here right now. And you touched on one briefly there about the cruise ship industry. And we've seen this law now passed south of the border in the United States, passed unanimously by the U.S. Congress and then signed into law by the president to for cruise ships, American cruise ships bound for Alaska to just skip over B.C., bypass B.C. ports, not going to stop, won't stop in Vancouver, Prince Rupert, Victoria, Nanaimo. I mean, this is just this industry has just been a windfall for BC tourism, and you're criticizing Horgan on that. Let me play this clip for you. Get your thoughts. So this is um, John Horgan back when this legislation was first being proposed in in the United States to skip beat these BC ports, and here he is kind of saying he didn't think it was going to pass. Here it is. This uh, a proposed piece of legislation, and again, in the U.S. Congress, I think anyone who has spent any time watching the U.S. Congress knows that the likelihood of success on any number of endeavors is remote uh, in, in good times, much less in times of crisis. Okay, he thought this is remote. It ends up passing unanimously. The guy had a bad read on it, to say the least. What are your thoughts? Oh. This is one of the honest, like, listen, I get governments make mistakes, and sometimes you just got to say, okay, you know, not everyone's perfect. But this is a staggering abdication of leadership by John Horgan and the entire um, NDP government. I, I am just stunned by this. Look, back in February 12th, the U.S. powerful, very powerful U.S. senators, Lisa Murkowski and Dan, Don Sullivan, wrote to this premier and the prime minister essentially begging them, please work with us so that we can continue to have a cruise ship industry for Alaska. And we recognize that your ports are currently closed, but maybe we could do technical stops, come up with some kind of compromise that will allow us to continue. They didn't even get a response. And when he finally was asked to respond, he makes those kind of, uh, you know, ridiculous comments. And it gets worse because later, after it sailed through the the, uh, U.S. Senate unanimously, the tourism minister... Melanie Mark um, made a, a rather bizarre comment that the NDP government was arrogant in our confidence. That was her quote, that it was very unlikely the legislation would pass the House of Representatives. And it went through yeah. unanimously a few days later. So here's the irony. If, I mean, it's just incredible. We all watch U.S. politics. The NDP have, has actually done something that you thought uh, that would ever be possible. 
they've somehow united Republicans and Democrats. And unfortunately, it's highly damaging in this case to British Columbia's interests. And I think we, we need to understand this. This is about taxi drivers. It's about hotel workers. It's about restaurants. It's about the food and agricultural sector, which provides a huge amount of support when those uh, vessels dock and they get reloaded here in British Columbia. I mean, this is devastating. And only after President Biden signed it into law is Horgan scrambling, desperately trying to set up a meeting and, and have a phone call with those folks. But they, have no, they don't have any respect for them. And crisis, the middle of a crisis, isn't when you should be building a relationship. You ought to have been doing that years ago. And I can tell you this, if Kevin Falcon was sitting in the Premier's office and I got a letter from two powerful senators that, that could potentially put our uh, tourism industry at risk on the cruise ships, I would have been on the phone that minute. I would have been on the phone to the Prime Minister, making it very clear that they have to work with me to make sure that we solve this problem and protect the jobs. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Kevin Falcon, the former B.C. Liberal Finance Minister. He is running for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party, taking your calls, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. James calling from South Surrey. Hi, James. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. All right. Uh, my, the only question I really have for Kevin is, uh, what are you going to do to root out the corruption and stop the money laundering that you know you guys allowed under your watch? Like, what what are you guys done, and what are you guys going to do? Kevin, sure. I, I, yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. First of all, uh, James, I you know I was out of government obviously when that happened. Doesn't matter though. I accept uh, our share of responsibility for whatever shortcomings there were in how we handled that. But I do think we have to step back for a minute and look at two things. One is that we've had an illegal marijuana industry in this province for decades. Uh, People used to joke about BC Bud and the billions of dollars that are generated. I guarantee you there's been money laundering going on in this province for an awful long time. Some of that money went somewhere. And the fact that it was happening in casinos should not be a surprise to us. I think what we have to recognize and what we're starting to hear from the Cullen Commission that's looking into this is the fact that there is very little effective oversight. There's none federally, virtually none federally. Uh, the provinces uh, are not equipped to handle it very well, including BC, because we've got multiple police forces all over the place, none that have the, uh, frankly, the expertise to oversee this. And it's been a real failure. I would argue it's probably been a failure under multiple governments. The BC Liberals have uh, to accept their share of responsibility. I certainly do on behalf of them, and I think we just have to work to make it better, and that you shouldn't can't, be a political issue. But you can't dump it off totally on the feds. I mean, this casino gambling was casino was provincial jurisdiction. It was the former Liberal government that shut down that casino police uh, squad. And when you saw the videos of guys coming into casinos with hockey bags full of gangster rolls of cash i mean that should have been setting off alarm bells all over that government shouldn't it well of course uh, it should and and look i'm not trying to shirk that at all but i think it's important to understand that the federal government does have an important role because the casinos are reporting all of those transactions all of that cash being deposited goes to a uh, a federal agency that apparently yeah. does nothing but file the paperwork that is totally inappropriate too but look i want to be clear about this we have to accept our share of responsibility provincially, no question about it. And I accept that. And we will do better. Remember, I think to James, the, here's the important thing I need to tell you about government. You never get perfect just because you get elected. And you're going to make mistakes in government. The key is, have the, has the leadership got the humility to recognize and acknowledge when they make a mistake, when they have shortcomings, 
and then get on and fix it. I have no trouble doing that. I think my experience and my record in government okay. shows that. Okay, let's go to Frank on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Frank. Hi. Um, I, I will definitely, I always vote liberal uh, provincially and conservative federally. Um, my frustration with the NDP is, I mean, since day one, they've been spending money they don't have. And it frustrates me that the citizens of B.C. don't understand that the chickens are going to come home to roost. Um, Kevin, how can you get people to understand that, you know, uh, we need to steer the ship in the right direction or there's going to be a reckoning uh, one of these days? Okay, Kevin Falcon, we got one minute left here. Go ahead. Okay, I'm going to be, yeah, that's a great question, Frank. Look, the NDP inherited a multi-billion dollar surplus. They blew through all of it within the first three years. We entered into the pandemic uh, hanging on to a balanced budget by our fingernails. And yet you look at what's happening. Uh, you know, Shirley Bond just the other day in estimates, Premier's estimates, did a great job in unveiling the fact that Premier Horgan's office budget has gone up 30%. 30%. Yeah. He, just part of that is he's got 10 staffers earning 150 grand a piece, uh, a piece excuse me, doing, you know, some sort of policy shuffling paper all around the place. I mean, this is appalling. The mental health and addictions ministry doesn't have as large a budget as the premier's yeah. office. And then we find out in that ministry that they spend it all on, on, on staff and none of it goes to actual programming. It's, it's just, so, I think people have to understand, competence matters. Okay, so 30 seconds here. If you become premier, you would reduce the budget in the premier's office, right? You're damn right I would. Those okay. people would be marched out of there in the first few minutes. Okay, save that tape. Save that oh, tape. Please do. Okay. Please do. All right. <laughs> Kevin Falcon, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk now about the multi-millionaire COVID Q jumpers, the casino mogul and his wife. They famously flew a private plane to the Yukon back in January, went to a small indigenous village posing as local hotel workers to get the COVID shots. Rod and Ekaterina Baker, he is the former CEO of Great Canadian Casinos. He's getting paid over a million bucks a year to be the CEO of a casino company. They had their day in court yesterday. They got the COVID shots, but did they get their just desserts? Okay, let's see what happened here in court. Uh, they were fined. $1,150 each, 500 bucks plus a $75 surcharge. So that's $2,300 total in fines for this couple for doing the COVID queue jumping up in the Yukon. A lot of people not happy uh, with that punishment handed down. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee, lawyer with Acumen Law, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Kyla, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me on this, about this. Okay, I know you've been following this case. It's a it's a fascinating one for sure. And there were a lot of people who were understandably furious about this, and and some people wanted to see a harsher penalty handed down. Like there were some people saying, well, these people should be locked up. They should be sent to jail. They should do time and behind bars. But was that ever a realistic possibility that they would do jail time for this? I mean, technically, they could have been given up to six months in jail for this, but okay. I don't think that it was ever a realistic possibility. Um, the you know the the reality is that these individuals faced significant consequences for their actions beyond the fines, and while it's disappointing that the sentence they received was not something that would more specifically deter them from doing something like this in the future, um, the fact that they didn't get jail time isn't exactly surprising. 
although it is frustrating. Okay, let me play a couple of clips here, Kyla, for you. And back in January when this story broke, I very memorably had a, an interview on the show here with John Stryker, who is a Yukon cabinet minister. He was kind of like the lead cabinet minister for the Yukon government on this file. And they were just furious up there that this couple pulled this stunt. And listen to this now. This is a bit of a longer clip here. He describes here how the, the bakers got caught here. Have a listen. As they were leaving, they said, hey, can someone get us a lift to the airstrip? And the vaccine folks were saying, no, we, we're, we're busy vaccinating people. But it, it, it tweaked for them. So uh, after the, so the, the couple left, they, they went, they walked to the airstrip, it's not that far, then uh, presumably got back on their charter. Meanwhile, the, the vaccine team decided to call over to the motel and say, hey, do you, do you have these two staff folks? And the answer was no. So then the vaccine team called back to Whitehorse and t- talked to our civil emergency measures enforcement folks and said, hey, be on the lookout for these two people. And so uh, the enforcement team went to the airport to try and meet the charter, but the charter had already landed, the charter from Beaver Creek back to Whitehorse. So then the enforcement team went to uh, to the hotel where this couple had declared that they would be self-isolating. Right. And then after that, they decided, because they'd already checked out, they decided to double back to the airport to domestic flights, and they found them in the departure lounge, wow. heading back out of the territory, and charged them there. Oh, okay, so that's how they got caught, Kyla. Not exactly the perfect crime. This is like not an Ocean's Eleven class heist here, especially when you ask the people in the clinic, "Can you after you get the shot, can somebody give us a lift to the airstrip? I mean, that's just kind of a dead giveaway. So I don't know. They didn't seem to plan this out very much, but... I also wonder what goes through someone's mind in trying to pull a stunt like this in the first place. Like, I just find the audacity of this is just kind of extraordinary. But your thoughts? The audacity is the thing that I think makes most people who hear about this as frustrated as they do. These are people who come from extreme wealth that most of us will never experience in our lifetimes, who have the ability to to hire a private charter to go take something from a community that is remote, removed from the rest of Canada, who has much more difficulty with all of the things that we take for granted. I mean, the price of, you know, your daily groceries in Yukon is is double what it's going to be uh, here in the lower mainland. And so, you know, you have these people who come from so much privilege, literally taking out of the hands of people who don't have that type of privilege and probably will never have that type of privilege. And, and that, well, to me, is the most offensive part about this. Well, yeah, especially when you consider that this guy, when he was, after he left, I mean, he stepped down as the CEO of Great Canadian Gaming, the casino company in the aftermath of this here. And apparently, according to the Globe and Mail, he left the company with $28 million in stock options. 28 million and he was making over a million bucks a year just in salary so i mean a fine of two thousand three hundred dollars for both of them does that make any sense like how how is that a deterrent when they're sitting on top of multi-millions it isn't a deterrent 
A $2,300 fine would deter a lot of people, for sure. It's a lot of money to a lot of people. But to specifically deter these two, it does nothing. It doesn't tell them that, uh, that they shouldn't do this in the future. The consequence of losing one's employment, the, the fact that these are, you know, now considered to be villains in the pandemic story, um, you know, those are things that are more specifically deterring. And a court does have to take into account all of the circumstances unique to the individuals that are before the court when they're being sentenced. Oh, okay, well, speaking of that, I mean, their reputations have been shattered here as a result of this bad publicity. I mean, is that also punishment effectively? It is considered to be a form of punishment, and it's a, yeah. a mitigating factor on sentencing that they've they've had these shattered reputations as a result of, course. of their actions. Okay, okay. Um, the other thing I wonder about, though, is whether they could have handled it better after they got caught, like maybe a public apology or giving money to this remote community or something. Like, Have a listen to this now. This is John Stryker again, the Yukon cabinet minister, uh, who, I, who was on the show back in January when this whole thing broke. And here he is talking about how the community reacted to this. We were outraged. I don't think that's me alone as the minister. I think that all Yukoners, and especially the folks in Beaver Creek, are really choked that uh, that Canadians would act in, uh, that anybody would act in such a selfish fashion to put themselves ahead of a community. Okay, I also asked him, he was really mad that day when he was on the phone here with me, that Yukon cabinet minister, and I asked him just, just how choked he was, and here's what he told me. It, it, it was, God, I'm trying not to use expletives, Mike. Like, like, I understand. Like, you know, we would all, here in the Yukon, we would talk pretty plainly about this stuff. Yeah. But well, feel just, free. I, feel free. Yeah, no, tell I know. Me how you, tell me how you really feel. Well, we're choked. We're yeah. absolutely choked. Yeah, I mean, they were really angry. Understandably, right? I mean, do you think, like, if you had been advising this couple as a lawyer, like, I, I wondered, maybe why not go up there and do some sort of a public apology or, or give them a, give them a million dollars to the community or something, you know? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I understand that they did make a $5,000 donation to a charity that works to ensure like access to COVID-19 vaccines around the world. But again, that's a very small amount of money to these people. And it doesn't uh, address the harm that was done to this specific community and to Yukon at large. And and I think as a lawyer, I would have advised them to do something that was specific to the community and specific to fixing what they had done wrong, not only for, uh, you know, the, the benefit that it would uh, give them in sentencing, but also just for the reputational damage that they've done and the actual pain that people in the community suffered. Okay, were you surprised at all at the sentencing here with the fine being handed down, such a small fine, uh, given that there were options here to, to inflict a, you know, a heavier sentence, right? There were options to the court to give something heavier. They could have given up to six months in jail. Uh, they could have put these individuals on probation, required them to do community work service or to, to apologize to the community, things like that. I would have liked to see more to address the real aspect of the harm done than just a fine that is, is a drop in a bucket to a government coffer and meaningless to these people. Okay, what about the fact that we're talking about... Um an in, a remote indigenous community here that was considered at particularly at risk from the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this was the community that was, uh, that they decided to try and get some, to get the vaccine from. How does that enter into the equation in your, in your opinion? This is 
something that our legal system is only slowly now coming to recognize, which is that Indigenous people are disproportionately more likely to be victims of crimes and victims of actions like this. Um, And I think that that sentencing needs to take into account circumstances where the victims are Indigenous or are an Indigenous community and reflect that in the type of sentence that's imposed, whether it's uh, whether it's to impose more community-based conditions that help to re- repair the harm done, or whether it's to increase the length of a sentence or the, the amount of a fine to reflect the harm done to that specific community, given their vulnerability and given the long-standing impacts of colonization that continue to affect Indigenous communities by making them more likely to be victims of crime. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the millionaire couple who went to the Yukon to get the COVID shot, Kyla Lee is my guest. Lots of your calls. Let's go right to them. Jocelyn in Delta. Hi. Hi there. Hi. I just wanted to bring up that, you know, this is a very arrogant couple. They're very wealthy. A thousand dollars is nothing to them. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to have seen them have to pay for all the legal fees too, that this has incurred the British Columbian taxpayers because we are on the hook for all this legal ramifications due to their arrogance. So okay. I, I just okay. think they did not get what they deserved. Okay, Jocelyn, thank you for that. Well, I guess maybe Yukon taxpayers where this where this took place maybe got stuck with the bill here. But what do you think about that, Kyla? Would there be like court costs involved that they'd have to pay typically or not? No. Not in a, a criminal or a regulatory prosecution like this. You wouldn't yeah. get ordered to pay the costs if you were the defendant, even if you were unsuccessful. In a yeah. civil proceeding, yes. Okay, Garth on the line in Ladner. Hi, Garth. I think what they should have done is community service and made them go up in a bus in the dead of winter and shovel everybody in the community's driveway. <laughs> oh man, in the Yukon? Wow, that'd be a lot of that'd be a lot of snow to shovel. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number to call. Star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell. Dave in Aldergrove. Hey, Dave. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Love to hear you talk. Thank you. This guy should have given a major donation to Beaver Creek yeah. and a major apology. And not only that, that judge should be outed for such a pathetic charge. Okay, thanks for the call, Dave. You know, that's what I was thinking, Kyla. Like, imagine if they had gone up there and done some sort of a public apology to the community and then said, we're here today with a check, like to build a new community center or something. I mean, this guy's sitting on a fortune. You know, they could have brought some money up there and helped this little community. People would, I think, people would have been ready to forgive them, maybe. You know, reconciliation with Indigenous communities is an ongoing process. So there's still time for them to do that. And, you know, maybe if they're listening or people who know them are listening, they could encourage them to follow through. It sounds like a lot of members of the public generally want them to see them to do this. And so this might be an opportunity for them to do the right thing. Maybe. I'm not sure they'll do it at this point, but we'll see. Richard in Vancouver. Hi, Richard. Yeah, I have to agree with all the previous uh, callers. I don't think they got their just desserts. Uh, one of the things that's always bothered, bothered me about the fine structure in terms of uh, criminal penalties and all that is like like $500, uh, a fine for $500 for the average Joe is not the same as $500 for, say, a lawyer or somebody, a corporate executive. I always thought fine structure should be based on a percentage, basically, of the average of someone's taxable income for the previous uh, three years. And that way, you know, people would be penalized equally in terms of uh, financially for 
basically criminal acts or things like this. Okay, well, was there any discretion by the judge here, Kyla, to impose a heavier fine, or was the judge basically constricted here to to bring in the fine that was prescribed under the offense? The judge was constrained in, in their authority to impose a fine. There was a maximum under the legislation, so they couldn't impose more uh, than what they did. Um, but, you know, in response to your, your caller's indication about um, income-adjusted fines, that is something that is done in other countries in the world. And it has been viewed as, as quite successful because the fines can be more of a deterrent, but they can also not be too stiff for people who are in a position not to be able to afford fines. I okay. think it's a sensible way of doing fines. Okay, I assume that they did get the maximum here. I mean, the 2300 bucks for both of them, that was the maximum fine allowed. Is that right? It was. Yeah. 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 Right. But I mean, if you get a big white collar crime case with someone embezzling funds from some company or something, I mean, you could couldn't the judge have a lot more leeway to inflict a heavier, a heavier sentence or heavier fine? Yes. In criminal cases, yeah. there are uh, less limitations on the amount of fines that you can be uh, made to pay. Right. Right. Because this was not a criminal code offense. This was like just a, a local what by what is it? A bylaw offense? What was it? It was an emergency measures offense, so very similar to the people here getting tickets for not wearing masks, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fascinating case. Thank you for coming on to talk about it, Kyla. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about working remotely now. Lots more people are doing that during the pandemic, and lots of people want to keep working from home even when the pandemic is over. Lots of people love working from home. Hey, why not, right? You don't have your boss looking over your shoulder at the office. But think about this now. Can your boss spy on you even if you're working remotely? Oh, Check this out. Recent studies say more and more employers are using monitoring software to keep an eye on their employees, monitoring what you're doing when you're on your computer, checking out what's uh, being said in your emails. Look at this The survey by the Gartner IT company. says that by the year 2025, up to 75% of workplace conversations could be recorded and, as- and accessed by your boss. Wow. Now think here's another one. If you're working at home, let's say you don't want to go back to the office, you want to keep working at home. What are your rights there? Can people do that? Okay. Lots to talk about now with my guest, Sandy Chen. Sandy is an employment lawyer with Sam Firo Tumarkin. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Sandy, thanks a lot for coming on. Warren, Mike, thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you for doing that. Let's start with the, uh, the monitoring software. Can your boss spy on you like that? Like, can they put like spyware on your computer to keep an eye on what you're doing? Yeah, Mike. So first of all, let me just start off by saying I think people are a bit better off here in BC than perhaps some other provinces. Um, our privacy legislation does afford some protection. Um, you know, there's been cases where companies have been ordered to remove surveillance in the workplace, right? Because it wasn't reasonable. So th- this principle of reasonableness does apply to anybody working from home too, right? Like if your employer wants to install a surveillance camera in your home office, that's probably not going to be allowed. Right. Um, on the other hand, all employers have a right to manage and control the workplace and its operations. So in these types of cases, there's a difference between the surveillance camera and perhaps, you know, some spyware or, or some software that tracks your data and how often you're browsing or using your emails. It's, 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 a, it's a balance of the competing rights. 
Right. Like, I think that's a really good point. Like, I don't think people would reasonably expect like a camera looking at you and watching you at the office or even at your home office. But is it more typical to see uh, some kind of software on a computer that can monitor well? Uh, what websites are you looking at? Are you doing online shopping during the day? Um, can they, you know, can your boss read your emails? That kind of thing. Is that more common? Yeah, like, and we're, we're seeing a lot of those questions come in. Um, you know, there's no law in Canada that explicitly says an employer cannot use these types of softwares. Um, if, if, if they want to monitor things like, you know, email usage, outgoing phone calls, that's fine. Um, it, the, where, where it becomes complicated is if they want to do that on your personal device, right? If they're, if they're asking you to do it on your personal device, that becomes an issue. They, they are permitted to give you a business phone if they wanted to and, and, and monitor that way. But where it becomes tricky, where I see is a lot of employees are being asked to put these apps and these softwares on their, on their personal phones and computers. Yeah, and w- let's say your boss wants to do that. They want to put some kind of monitoring software on your phone or your computer. Would they have to disclose that to you legally? Like, would they have to tell their employee, hey this software, this app is, is on your device. So we know, you know, what websites you're looking at. Do they have to tell you that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and right. e- even if it was a business device, right, even if it was a company computer or a company phone, they, they'd have to give you notification in advance. Um, where, where it becomes tricky with the personal devices is you don't actually have to say yes to that, right? Unless it was, you know, unless it was something you agreed to before you started your job, your employer can't come up to you one day and say, hey, I need you to install this app on your phone or, or, it's, or I'm going to let you go, right? That, that wouldn't yeah. be misconduct if you said no to that. Um, and, and, of course, it's, it's, th- there's the issue of you install this app, what data is it collecting, right? If it's just your location, that might be okay if it's your location during work hours, but employees have a right to know what data is being collected and how it's being used and how it's being protected. Right. Okay. So I guess it's pretty clear that, you know, your boss obviously has some, has some legal rights here to, like you said, control the workplace and manage the workplace. But do you think that maybe some employers can go too far? Like what about good old fashioned trust? Like, you know, a violation of your trust or I'm going to trust my employees. It does not make a happier workplace. I, I, I tend to agree. I, I think that, you know, each company is different, obviously, right? I mean, if, 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 you, if you have a workplace where, you know, your employees are productive and you yeah. all of a sudden say, hey, I'm going to start monitoring you, that might be counterproductive. Um, I mean, the, the monitoring isn't anything new, Mike. I mean, they used to have these punch-in, punch-out time cards, right? Um, it's just nowadays, it's, it's this it's this concept of the, of data and, and how is it being used because you don't know where the data is going to go after it's being collected. Um, but but I, I absolutely agree that the, 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 obviously it's it's best if you can trust your employees and you know implementing this these spyware or this this tileware on people's computers yeah. might be pretty counterproductive. Yeah right. Speaking to Sandy Chen, Sandy is an employment lawyer, Sam Fira to Market. Sandy, this is really interesting. I think. Given the the impact of the pandemic and more people working from home, working remotely, working at a home office, lots more people are doing that. And a lot of people 
a lot of people seem to love it. Like you're seeing more stories now that as we hopefully get to the end of this pandemic and people are maybe starting to be expected to return to the office. Okay, time to go back to work, time to go back to the office. What rights, I mean, are you seeing more people who kind of like working from home and want to keep working from home and not go back to the office? And do they have, do they have any rights to do that? Yeah, yeah, Mike, we are seeing a lot of people calling in, you know, and asking these types of questions. Um, my, my general advice is, I mean, the reality is it, the employer has a right to ask employees to work from its physical offices. Um, yeah. And, and if, you know, they say next month, uh, you're going to have to come back uh, and, and work from the office. Um, right. An employee has to go back or else they could be deemed to have resigned. Um, now, the, the, if, if, you, if during the pandemic at some point, you know, your, your manager or, or HR says to you, um, you know, Mr. Smith, you can work from home indefinitely. And you relied on that assurance. That's a different story. That, that could be a basis from which you could say, no, you can't make me go back to the office now. Okay, it's interesting to see some of the surveys and research that's coming out in this. And I was just looking at a survey that was was done by a professional network app company. Um, and they asked employees, if you could continue working from home permanently, would you take that option, like continue to work from home? Or would you go back to the office, go back if you got a $30,000 a year raise? And the results on this survey were not even close. Most people said they would rather work from home. I, I find that a little surprising. Like 30000 bucks is a lot of money. That's a big raise to turn down. But it does reflect that a lot of people like working from home and would prefer to do it even if they, even if they took a, a less money in their paycheck. Do you think that, I don't know, we're seeing some kind of a shift here in workplace culture going forward that more and more people will want to work from home and that more and more employers will allow them to work from home? I, I think so. I, I, I think that, you know, companies, a lot of companies have realized that, you know, for the most part, employees can work productively from home. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just better for their general well-being, right? It, some, some people in the bigger city centers have to commute an hour, two hours each way. That, that's more time they have with their family. Uh, more times, you know, maybe exercise and, and, and you know, keep in shape. Um, so I, I'm not surprised with that at all. I mean, $30,000 versus, you know, a better lifestyle, it, it, it doesn't surprise me. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is employment lawyer Sandy Chen, taking your calls on working from home, 604-280-9898, star 9898 in your cell. Julie in Pitt Meadows. Hi, Julie. Hey. Hi there. Um, yeah, you were asking if I would um, prefer working from home over the $30,000 raise. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely would. I definitely would. <laughs> what, what, um, I have not it? been sick in a long time now since, since the whole thing began. I haven't even had the sniffles, nothing. Um, and just the time that it's, for me, it's not so much going into the office as it is a commute. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, tell me about that. Thank you for the call, Julie. Julian Pitt Meadows there. Yeah, that's amazing to me, Sandy, that people would be willing to t turn down a pretty big raise if they can just work from home. Like a lot of people are just loving it. Is that what you're hearing from your clients? 
it, it is. It is. A lot of people are enjoying the time with their family, especially. I think that's the big one. Uh, personally speaking, I, I think that I would probably pick the work from home option and give up the, I mean, because that, that $30,000 is taxed, right? After tax, yeah, right. I, I don't think it's worth it personally. Okay, Sylvia on the line in Surrey. Hi. Um, I would prefer working from home um, by a long shot. We were given the choice if we want to stay working from home, and I'd say 90% of the staff said, yes, they'll stay working from home. Wow. Uh, I agree with uh, the last caller about the commute. I start work at 3 a.m., and so I don't even have to get out of bed until 2.30 a.m. anymore. The commute is from one room to the other instead of, you know, like driving to New Westminster or wherever. Oh, now what about when the pandemic is over, Sylvia? Will you be expected to go back to the office or no? No, no, we won't be. That's what they gave us the option if we want to stay working from home. And I I would give up the $30,000. I would not care like they said. It just goes to taxes anyways. There you go. Okay, Sylvia, thank you for that. There you go. I mean, there's more people. It's kind of surprising to me, but when you stop and think about it, you know, people love it so much more in terms of the lifestyle, yeah, that grinding commute every day, if you could avoid that. And maybe more and more employers are figuring out that they can do this. They can pull this off and have a remote workforce and continue to be effective. Of course, not every job, you can do that, but a lot of them you can. Let's go to Mike on the line of Vancouver. Hey, Mike. Oh, hi. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of a good idea. I probably work from, but I was wondering of the the ripple effects that the uh, downtown, you know, where you have office buildings, they have to downsize the people that depend on office workers to come to patronize their businesses and everything. I just wondered what kind of an impact that would be if everyone were from home. Well, like, you're absolutely you're absolutely right, and there's a lot of people fretting about that commercial property values, spin-off businesses in the downtown with restaurants, coffee shops. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a whole the ramifications of it are are huge. But but Sandy, in your experience like are more employers taking a look at that remote workforce office? I mean, maybe they'd save money on office space. They are. They are. Yeah. And and that's that's exactly, you know, why they they would prefer um some employees or maybe all employees work from home because commercial leasing isn't isn't cheap, right? Um, and obviously the cost of insurance and all the other stuff, it, it adds up. Um, so it's a huge business cost for or savings for, for employers. Okay, let's take uh, squeeze another call in here. Dale in Nanaimo. Hi, Dale. Hi, first-time caller. I cool. just want to put a different spin on it. Sure. What if your employer said, we're going to pay you less money because you're saving money, and also is there a chance that some of the workers – could be replaced by other workers, say in other countries. You mean like we'll pay you less money if you if we let you work from home? Is that what you mean? That that's correct. You know, because okay. money is so important to the uh, the company, and well, the, the employer would save money. Uh, the employee would save money for not um, commuting and clothes, etc. But what if the employer said, you know, I could get that work from a person in a different country? Okay, could we see more outs? Thanks for the call, Sandy. We got thirty seconds here. Could we see more outsourcing of work? Do you think we could? We could. That's unfortunate. But but to the question of whether they can pay you less, absolutely not. Um, mm. An employer can't unilaterally change your pay. They can increase it, but they they can't decrease it. If they decrease it enough, you have a right to claim what's called a constructive dismissal. 
meaning they let you go without saying they let you go. Um, and in that case, you could you know claim for actually quite a bit of severance depending on your years of service um, and your age. Uh, as to outsourcing, I, I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, if the job can be done elsewhere for cheaper, um, you know, obviously, if they, you are let go because of outsourcing, you're still entitled to severance. Um, just because your job is discontinued doesn't mean you're not entitled to compensation.